chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow uh, in our order of worship. I once heard a writer point out that... uh, And I haven't watched enough episodes of this to know if this is the case or not, but it sounded right, so I'm going to relay it. Um, That there's there's a unique difference, or or I guess you said notable difference, between the 60s episodes of Star Trek and the 90s episodes of Star Trek. I guess he's thinking of like the next generation, Captain Kirk versus Captain Picard. And he said the difference is if you look at the, the original well-known 60s episodes, there's no religion. There's no religion. You know, they'll come onto a planet, they'll come into a different culture on their mission, and you don't really, you don't bump, as far as I've ever seen, you don't bump into any culture with religious practice. And this writer said, that's coming out of something. That's coming out of the cultural moment of the late 60s. Because the predictions that probably really began in earnest about 10 years before that was that the more technologically advanced, the more scientifically advanced any people or culture becomes, then you're going to see religion just wane. You know, people aren't going to need a God to explain the weather to them, you know, or to uh, heal them of a physical illness. That's going to happen through technology and through scientific understanding. So the more that advances, you're not going to see religion. And this writer pointed out that even by the 90s, you can see that that prediction had not, had not happened. And so you do find religion in the episodes just 30 years later. Now, that's interesting. It's interesting that the dire predictions about mid to early late 20th century, early late. Is that tortured grammar or what? But I mean, you know, 50s into 60s, these predictions that this is just going to fall by the wayside absolutely wrong. And think about it in another culture. 100 years ago, Korea, and at that point it wasn't North and South Korea, just Korea. 100 years ago, Korea was 1% Christian. 99% non-Christian. It's now, I guess predominantly in South Korea, 40% Christian. And interestingly, when the church has just taken off like wildfire in Korea is exactly when they have most developed economically. They've most developed scientifically. They've most developed technologically. And against all predictions, that's when the growth of spirituality really took place, at least Christianity. Now, that is not by accident. That is not by accident. And and really what that is, is that's a fulfillment of something that you find throughout the Bible, one one place that sort of states this in a nutshell is in an Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes. Solomon, King Solomon, who wrote it, he says this, that God, you've put eternity into men's hearts. Very interesting. You've put eternity into men's hearts. It, at one level, it doesn't matter that we're mortal, we're finite, we're weak, We're deteriorating. We still walk around with eternity in our hearts. And what that means is only something eternal is going to scratch the itch. You're craving something that's going to fill this hole in the heart. But the only thing that will plug the hole has to be something eternal. God makes us this way. Now, if you're visiting, again, 
Welcome. I'm very glad you're here. We just last week started a series on the Ten Commandments. And we said last week that that's as Old Testament as you get. Mount Sinai and thunder and lightning and fire and Moses. Uh, that's as Old Testament as you get. Why are we studying that? Why not study a gospel? Not, why not do a series about Jesus? And we said at least a couple of reasons. One is that the New Testament says that the law of God is like, is like a school tutor or a guardian or a teacher. It leads you to Jesus. Because you're not going to need Jesus unless you really need a lot of mercy. And what the law does, it comes to you and says, here's what you ought to be. And here's what you are. Do you need mercy or not? And if you see it rightly, the right response is, I need a Pacific Ocean of mercy. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Jesus comes along and he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That you understand who he is and what he's about when you understand that he's the only person that ever walked this earth and did this perfectly. Now, this morning we're getting to the first command. And here's what I want you to think about. It's not going to take long to read it. This is so incredibly kind of God. And and we looked at this last week. Even though the medium through which he's delivering it is very frightening. Mount Sinai turns into lightning and thunder and smoke and fire and an inexplicably loud trumpet that terrified the Israelites. Very frightening medium. But what he's doing is so kind because God at the beginning is saying, first things first. And he is getting to the very heart of why and how we destroy ourselves. Why and how we destroy ourselves. You know, I've not been making enough 80s references in here lately. Let me rectify that. Indigo Girls. Okay. Saw them live at Ole Miss for free. Indigo Girls, mid-80s, song called Prince of Darkness. Great lyric that says, No one can convince me that we aren't gluttons for our doom. That is a stark lyric. You you cannot convince me that we're not gluttons for our doom. Just, Just watch us. Gluttons for our own destruction. And God in His love says, before we talk about the particulars, first things first, where does that come from? Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when uh, as we come to your word and we think about what one of the psalmists said that uh, my strength and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and He's my portion forever. Father, we would confess that it's often hard for us to resonate or relate to that at all. 
that you're not our portion. You're not our strength unless perhaps we feel like we're in a bind. And so we pray that you would make these words real inside of us. They are real, but we need to bump into their reality. So we ask that you'll do that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at two things this morning about this first command. This is the first of the ten. First thing is this. Um, What does it look like when you take another God? And then second, what can change you if you do that? What does it look like to take another God and then... What do you do about it? All right, the first thing, what does it look like to take another God? First off, the Ten Commandments are very familiar. I mean, this is the kind of thing you might see on a sign or a plaque or a needlepoint or whatever. And the more familiar something is, the more uh, you kind of go on autopilot when you read it. So you have to, especially with familiar words, you have to stop and say, what does this mean? All right, when God says... Don't have any other gods before me. First off, when he says that, that doesn't mean um, I can't be number two in line. I have to be number one in line. He doesn't mean you can have five gods, but make me number one. He's saying, no, have no other gods besides me. In the Hebrew, what it really means is have no other gods in my presence before my face. And my face is everywhere. But when he says, have no other gods, are there other gods? Is there like a cast of characters that you can pick from and potentially have these other gods and that they actually exist? And the Bible says no. No, they're all false. So if they're all false, then why the command not to take one? And that here is God, again, saying, first things first, I know you. I know you. And he knows what is the bent of all of our hearts. And and friends, please understand me. When I say this, I am not describing somebody out there. If you're visiting and you think, okay, he's just kind of talking about non-Christians not in the room. I am describing us. It is the bent of our hearts. Whoever else is out there, we're talking about us. It is the bent of our hearts to look around with, with this eternity in your heart and to have to do something with it. That I've got to do something about this hole that needs something massive to fill it. And, but here's the problem, is that rather than turn to the one being who's infinite, who's eternal, who's unchangeable, who would fill it, we turn to the creation. The creation's everything else. And we look to it and we try to get it to do for us what only God can do. Try to get it to be for us what only God can be. And it can be as overt as like a primitive tribe, you know, bone through the nose, weird painting all over your body, worshiping a rock or a mountain or a river or or the moon. Or it can be someone in a downtown loft who will do anything in the name of comfort. It can go either way. It's to take a good part of creation. Is comfort good? Yeah, I like comfort. 
You know, like the moon, and like rivers, like rocks. Take a good part of creation and make it ultimate. To try to get it to be for you what only God can be. And really, the biblical way to describe that is to say, to look to it to save you. To save you. That if there's something I want and I can't get it, or even to up, to up it in importance, if there's something I need and I can't get it, or if I profoundly sense emptiness in my life and I need filling, I need stabilization, I need to know who I am on this planet, that you look to it as something ultimate. That's having another God before Him. Now, what happens when you do this? First off, you find something and you seize on it. It's probably something that you've had a good experience with. Whether that's a relationship or a possession or an experience, it's going to have a, good, it's going to have a goodness to it because God made it. And you seize on it. Then what happens? Very important. You accept it into your heart. Now, there, there's an expression that churchy people use a lot. This is kind of a Bible Belt way of talking. And it's to say, I accepted Jesus into my heart. Did you know the Bible never uses that phrase? Some of you are about to stone me as a heretic, I know. But I, trust me, the Bible never uses that exact phrase, accept Jesus into your heart. All right, but it does use that phrase about something else. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 14, it says that the Israelites, they're not just bowing down to statues. They're not just bowing down like to this uh, fertility and harvest god named Baal. But they have now, according to God, taken the idols into their heart. That it's not just a practice like throw the deity a bone so the crops will be better. But really, deep down, I now worship him. That if Baal is pleased, I'm doing well. And if Baal is not pleased, I am devastated. You take a good part of creation and then you accept it into your heart. And then what happens? The thing that you thought was your servant becomes your master. You went to it and you thought, it will do for me what I want, and I will have control over it, whether that's do these three things for this deity to serve it, or whether it's I have control in my life when I work hard and bring home a salary, and I exercise, and I hydrate, and I time manage, then I have control. And that does for me what I want. And you think that you're the master... And it flips. It becomes the master, and we become the servant. Um, first Harry Potter book, Sorcerer's Stone. Harry Potter's wandering around Hogwarts. He's going into some places he's not supposed to go. And he comes across a mirror. Comes across a mirror. And it's the mirror of Erised, which is desire backwards. And he walks up to it and he sees his reflection. And then the image changes. And what he sees, lo and behold, it's his mom and dad. And he desperately wants to know them. 
and desperately wants to have them, but he's never had them. And suddenly they're flanking him. Now, they're not standing beside him, but in the mirror, they're flanking him and they're looking at him adoringly and, they, and they're touching him. Absolutely scratches the itch in the core of his being. And then Dumbledore shows up. Okay, Chief Wizard. It's always good to talk about these things in sermons. Chief Wizards. Um, they were stoned in the Old Testament. Remember that, y'all. Okay, remember that. Dumbledore shows up and he says, um, What do you think that mirror does? Harry thought, then he said slowly, It shows us what we want. Whatever we want. Yes and no, said Dumbledore quietly. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. You, who have never known your family, see them standing around you. Ronald Weasley, who has always been overshadowed by his brothers, sees himself standing alone, the best of all of them. However, this mirror will give us neither knowledge nor truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen, or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. That's what idolatry does is you look at something and you think, that's what I want. And you seize on it. And for a while, you seem to be in control and to be getting what we seem to be in control, getting what we want. And then it becomes the master and it takes life. It takes life away. And then at the end, and this is like, this is the polishing off. You end up becoming like what you worship. That is a huge biblical theme. You become like what you worship. And if you worship another God, if you fail it, it will punish you. For instance, if, if, if you work and your work life has something of a healthy proportion in your life, a healthy role in your life, and you have a bad day, you can come home at the end of it and go, man, that was a bad day. That was a tough day. And you can eat supper, and you can watch Dog Bounty Hunter, and decompress. You know, if my day was bad, I mean, give me a break, and just bring it on down, and go to bed and say, all right, tough day, don't want to repeat it, let's put that one in the books, new day tomorrow. If work has a right place in your life, but if you make it ultimate, if you meeting your goals of achievement becomes ultimate and you have a bad day, then I will never have to explain to you what an idol punishing you means. And some of you are already experiencing this. Idols do not extend mercy. You either meet their demands or they punish and they don't give life. They, they hook us in on the front end that they will. And it's not just the absence of life. They start robbing it. And you become like what you worship. Now, if those things are true, then there's a big question that we all need to ask right now. And what is it? What's mine? I mean, I know I don't have a shrine, probably, um, with incense and a statue, and uh, probably... It's something else. 
How do you spot your idol? Let's ask some diagnostic questions. This is relevant to every person in this room. What is it that infuriates you? I don't mean mild irritation. What absolutely brings you to a boil? All right, why? What, what, what is it that devastates you? In other words, let's say that you're a parent with children and or a child. And one day as your child is leaving the, leaving the home or getting out of the car or van to go to school, and y- y'all have gotten into a squabble and your child says, I hate you. Last thing, last thing ringing in your ears for the next, what, six and a half hour stretch? Does that hurt or does it devastate? Uh, if, you have, if you have a workout goal or uh, just physical discipline objective and you fall short of it, is that disappointing or does a feeling wash over you like I am trash? Think about it another way. When you, when you bump up against great stress and you've got to do something, what do you do? What do you do? Who's the first call? Or what do you look at? Or what do you ingest? Those are all massive clues. They're not just clues. Those are blinking lights to say, however you answer those questions, however you answer the question of when blank is good, life is great. When blank goes bad, life is awful. However you fill that blank in, those are good things that have become ultimate. And you know what's interesting? It's the things we started out with that tend to be the biggest the biggest pitfalls. What did we start out with? God gives us what? Man and woman. Our bodies. Work. Family. Shouldn't I love my kids? Sure. But if you worship your children, it will destroy you. By the way, they're going to move away. And I don't say this lightly, they may die before they do. And we need to stop and ask, do I want a deity that can die and not come back? All right, so this is the bad news. We love idols and we make them all the time. Famous quote, John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. What do you do? How do you get rid of them? And I want you to see this. This is the main thing I want you to see. God doesn't begin the law with law. God doesn't begin the law with law. He's God. He could start it however He wants to. And if He wanted to start off and say, here are the 100 things that you will do perfectly or I'll destroy you. He would have the right to do that. We belong to Him. But how does He start? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Um, There's so much here, just briefly. 
I am the Lord. Do you see how that's in all caps? In most biblical English translations, that's the way it would be written. When you see Lord in all caps, that means something very important. That's God's personal name. In a way, God is more of a title. And it is who He is. But His personal name, the way my my first name is Brian, His personal name, He says this to Moses, is I am. God's personal name is I am who I am. The amazing thing is, no one else can have that name and it be true. That in all my perfections, at any given moment, without addition or subtraction, always forever, I am who I am. No one else can have that name or be a lie. And then he says, I'm the Lord, you're God. And the reason that is so unbelievably kind is that they have been so crummy. And you would think that, okay, they were crummy. I mean, they're coming out of slavery, a lot of bitterness. They're in the wilderness. They're worried about their kids. You know, cut them some slack. But, man, let them see God in fire on the mountain and they will straighten up and they're going to know that God is their God. And he says, you're going to be my treasured possession and they're going to be hitting on all cylinders. And what do they do? Moses is not off this mountain before they are idol worshiping. And the rest of their history doesn't go much better. And God knows that. That's why His laws address it. He already knows it. And He says, I'm your God. You know what that means? He says, you're my people. I am your God and you're my people. He says that from Genesis to Revelation. And then He says this, I brought you out of slavery. And please hear this. If you want to see the gospel in the Ten Commandments, before command number one, he doesn't say, all right, guys, do this, and I'll keep you out of bondage. Do this, and I'll bring you out of bondage. He says, do this, because I've already brought you out of bondage. Not do this, and I'll love you. I already love you, so do this. Did that change the Israelites? Does law by itself have the power to change you? No. New Testament says the law actually has the power to provoke you. It says don't lie and you go, I kind of think I'll lie. Don't covet. Well, now that you mention it, there are some things I want. Provoke you. Sinful nature. Does just saying, I'm God, I love you, don't have any other gods, does that have the power to change? No. What has the power? It's to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the first commandment. How? Oh, to have an hour. I'll shoot for three minutes. One day he's out teaching and he gets into a real, he gets into it with the religious leaders. And uh, he says, Abraham saw my day. Abraham saw my day and was very glad. And they say, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Like, what a nut. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. 
And John says they picked up stones to stone him because, understand, it was not a capital offense to be a nut. It was a capital offense to blaspheme. And he just said, I am Yahweh. I am the God you saw on Mount Sinai. That's in the Gospel of John. And get this, later in the Gospel of John, and I'll tell you as a minister, I don't understand the passage I'm about to quote. So let me drag you into my misunderstanding. Misery loves company. John chapter 18, when they come to arrest Jesus, the Roman guards come up to him, Roman soldiers, tough. And they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? John's the only one who records this. In English translations, it probably says, I am he. But in Greek, in the original, Jesus said, I am. And it says that the Roman soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. Armed, and he's not. And it never explains that. But John, the eyewitness, basically lets us see that to say, they didn't understand why they responded that way, but you do. He's Yahweh. And the night before, his best friends are going to betray him. He says, you are my friends. The night they do betray him, you're my friends. The night they'll run away from him, You are my friends. And he never backs away from that. It says in Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And we have given him every reason to be ashamed. But the last thing is this. We quoted this last week. Where else do you find a mountain and the divine voice and light and a cloud It's the Mount of Transfiguration. And we didn't talk about this last week, but on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus peels the veil back and lets three of His disciples see that He is God, two other people appeared, Moses and Elijah. And it says in the Gospels that they talked with Him about something. You know what they talked with Him about? It says in Luke, they talked with Him about His, in Greek, exodus. His departure that He would lead His people out of bondage. Not bondage to a foreign nation. Bondage to self-destruction. Bondage to self-love and sin. And on the cross, He doesn't just take the the guilt away, He takes the power of sin away. He's, He's Moses, but better. You're not going to see the fullness of why God alone is worthy of worship if you don't see Jesus. I want to end with this. I, I, I once had a conversation with a guy. He's a theologian. He got, his, he got his doctorate in theology from Harvard. Smart guy. And he's written a book about defending the faith, apologetics, like how to reason about challenges to Christianity. And I'd never, really, I'd never got to talk with him one-on-one. And so I finally asked him a question. I thought, oh, I've always wanted to ask this. Excellent. And I asked him, when you were in grad school at Harvard, which this is not being ugly, is not what we would call a Bible-believing seminary. And you're being very challenged about historic claims of Christianity. How did you keep your wits about you? And I kind of like buckled in for an awesome half-hour answer. And his answer was about 11 seconds. He said, well, 
I'd go to class and I would look at what they were offering me and I would look at what Jesus was offering me. And uh, I went with Jesus. Okay. It's a good answer. That's why he went to Harvard. I didn't. Cut to the chase. I want you to get mad at your idol. I want you to hate it. But But the hate won't do it. I want you to hate it as you see that it punishes you. It punishes me. I need people to approve of me. I need my children to smile back at me. I need to be the favorite employee. I need to be thin. I need to meet this time on this run. I need it. Get angry at it and then see Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? More work? Rest. My burden is easy. My load is light. I will not take life from you. I will pour it into you. To love and worship Jesus is to obey the first commandment. Let's close in prayer. Father, to lawbreakers, have mercy. Let us see Jesus clearly. We pray that we might stare at Him, study Him, sing and speak to Him, seek Him, obey Him, And that in looking on Him, we would become like what we worship and be transformed. We ask in His name. Amen.